the deacons across the state of Louisiana had a strong relationship with the, with the uh, longshoremen, you know? Okay. And so they were not just, they didn't just have a lot of little 22s. They were well on. <laughs> they were well on. <laughs> and, they, and they all, and, and the strange thing about it, they worked at the uh, Crown Zellerbach, the paper plants, both in Jones, uh, Jonesboro and Bogalusa. Both of those plants were unionized. Okay. So during the day, the Klansmen and the deacons worked side by side at those plants, all right? Wow. And at night, they were shooting at each other. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Welcome to part two of our three-part conversation with Dave Dennis. This is Loki Mulholland, and it's time to get uncomfortable. You know, when you talk about the community, um, and that sense of community that you had uh, as sharecroppers and later in the civil rights movement, I, I, I can't help but think of the eulogy you gave at James Cheney's funeral. And you were not just upset because Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner were killed, but you called out the living dead in Mississippi and throughout the country. Was that a reflection of the, of the lack of community? And what, what did you mean by that? Well, the, uh, there are several things, it's sort of like uh, Obama was talking about, the fact is that at that time you're going through two phases. You had these people who were making a stand, and you, you, know, you made a stand even if you, uh, if you provided housing for people, that was a stand. And you had a lot of people still who were scared, you know, but they were not making a stand and stuff is, and not, not, not making that strong commitment. So that was one aspect of it is. And so the other thing that was playing a role at that time is, is another story that, uh, that I didn't talk about too much. And um, in fact, I buried it. Uh, but during the time we were uh, uh, Freedom Summer, we were trying to find housing for the Freedom Democratic Party in Atlantic City. So I had gone over there to Atlantic City to try to figure out, we were late, you know, most of it had been taken up, but there was a black guy who- This is Fannie Ed King and such. Right, that's a whole crowd, there was busloads of people. And there were a lot of people came in. And so I was went there to try to negotiate with him and stuff. So after talking to him, he had two uh, motels that existed there. And I forgot the name of now. But anyway, one of my good friends is uh, David Baldwin. James Baldwin's brother was a very good friend. So I called him from the notes. So he said, man, why don't you come and spend a couple of days with him? And I say, man, I got to get on back down to Mississippi. He say, man, they're not going to miss you. Take a couple of days. You need because y'all getting ready to get into the summer pieces. And so he knew what was going on in Mississippi because he had been down a few times. Uh, so I decided, okay, so I went to New York. He lived on 110th and 5th Avenue. So we were there just talking and stuff like this is and, and drinking and, and then just relaxing. So we heard all these ambulances, fire, I mean, uh, sirens and stuff. So we go outside and say, man, let's go, let's see what's going on. Cause we could see there was lights all over the place. So we walked into Harlem. <clears throat> I ended up in the middle, <laughs> middle of the Harlem riots, right? <laughs> so, I mean, this is kind of crazy life was, with, which I say a lot of people is about fate. So actually we spent, we're not going through all the details. We spent about two days running around and everything else is so. Uh, and so what's one day, this last day evening, we were there, and so things are quiet now. So this young kid, David, and I walking, and uh, this young kid at the same darted across the street, 
just as he darted across the street, the cops are all around. Somebody throws a bottle that breaks right out by the kid. Cop turns around and just blow the kid away. Boom. So David Baldwin goes over and is holding the kid. We had, so the cop walks up to him, get away from a nigga before I blow your brains out. And so David Baldwin responded, I don't give a damn. He said, you've already done it. So, you, you know, they already, you've already blown my brains out. So then the black cop comes up and he and his white cop gets into the thing. Is, and so he says, oh, bro, by this time, ambulance comes up and they, they get the kid and David Baldwin, I leave. So that was a haunting thing. What well, that was is a few days, uh, about a week, around, of course, maybe before the funeral thing. So when I'm there is, I see uh, this, all this stuff is coming down on me. I was with Medgar uh, about, uh, about an hour or so before he was uh, uh, murdered. I was with Chaney Goodman Swerner about, you know, 24 hours before they were killed. Then there were other people, you know, that we, the bar knows that we were with, you know, around, you know, you know, who just disappeared. And during the time that Chaney Goodman Swerner was missing, they were finding bodies. I mean, it wasn't like the, 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 re the reaction to the country was, was that, hey, they found another body, or they found two bodies, and they're going to see if they, they, uh, they wanted the missing civil rights workers, blah, blah, blah. They come back and say, nope, it wasn't them. Everybody was saying, okay, maybe they're still alive. And nobody was saying, wait a minute, you know, you're finding bodies. You're finding <laughs> black, black bodies in Mississippi. Yep. So when I get up there with Cheney, uh, before I go there, they're telling me that, you know, they want to be, you know, calm, don't get people excited because the country's on edge and blah, this and that is. And so I said, okay, but when I got up there is, I see Ben Cheney and I see this kid in the street. I see Medgar, you know, and I just lost it. If somebody gave me a gun, I, I don't know what I would have done, you know, to be honest with you. Because at that particular time, is I just didn't see any way that this country was going to respond positive to us is, even at the Freedom Democratic Party, I was totally out of it in a sense. It's, that you, you, it's like, you know, you have to speak their language. They don't understand but one language in this country. I mean, that's how I felt at that time. Mm. You know, and so when I went to Atlantic City, <clears throat> I spent most of my time out there on the boardwalk, you know, with the rest of the people is. I, I refused to go into the meetings. So a lot of meetings, I wasn't there. I didn't, if you, I don't know if you, you don't see pictures of me in those meetings because I was just too, I was pissed off with the country. So after that piece all left is, you know, you had this, you know, I mean, I wasn't too long after I left Mississippi and uh, I, went through, I went through a whole lot of mental issues, you know. I didn't know anything about PTSD at that time, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it took me a, a number of years uh, to get my head together uh, again, because I was just, you know, I'll be, you know, I let everybody know this. I was screwed up. <laughs> they did a job on me. <laughs> you know, you know, Dave. I, I, tell, I define it as uh, you spent. We spent a lot of time uh, trying to. Uh, I call it appeal to the consciousness of America. And there comes a point where you realize, or you think you do that there is no custody. There's no such thing as that. And yes. all you want to do is go back to what you used to do, which is pick up a gun, yes. because that's what they listen to. So I know exactly what you're talking about. I know there are a lot of people, by the way, that went through 
you know, what you did. They just, they didn't want any part of it anymore because the nonviolence didn't work. People were not paying attention, just like they weren't paying attention to all those bodies that came out of the river. I mean, people weren't mad about what was happening to us anymore. Right. Uh, especially that when it was, when it got to be 64, 65, because they figured, well, the only thing they were mad about, they meaning us, was that they couldn't vote. Well, now we told them they could vote, so that's it. We can all go home now. So I know exactly how you feel. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, it's a loaded question because I, I think I already know the answer to this, but if it was just Cheney that was killed, do you think there would have been that big of an investigation? Hell no. I mean, you had Macri just was killed the year before, mm-hmm. you know, and you didn't have that big a piece of it. And like I just said, they were finding bodies. You know, yeah. you didn't have that, you know. Which uh, nobody got mad about. Exactly right. It's, they were mad about the fact is they're looking for, uh, you know, these white kids. And so one of the things, to be honest with you, part of the vote was when we were, I think it was in Hattiesburg in January of 1964, when we had that meeting. And so the question was about whether we want to bring all these white kids in, all right? And so what really was a turning point, I mean, the vote was really not to bring them in, you know? And then Lewis Allen was killed. We were in Hattiesburg in the middle of a meeting. And so Bob, I had a call, and so Bob came back into the meeting and said, they just found Lewis Allen. Well, that was a turning point. Because we begin to feel there is, hey, this ain't, it's not going to be an answer to this problem is until what we call the children of the Constitution uh, get some of this, you know. So these, uh, we got to bring these other kids in, you know, because that's the only way we're going to get the attention of the country is if their children start coming in here and facing this violence and stuff right. like that. Mm. And so that's how, that was a turning point of this vote. That was the real reason for the getting in. But other, before that, up until that moment is the vote was against bringing them in. That was led by Charlie Cobb and others, you know, who was saying no, you know. And, uh, and Mrs. Heyman was, you know, she, of course, is for it, you know. I mean, but uh, the, and, and a lot of the local people felt differently. Uh, but the uh, people like Hollis and them, you know, they were, they were totally against the, uh, bringing, bringing them in. Is. And so when they came to that point is of every rationale was that when Bob came back and said, Louis Allen, they just found Louis Allen. Mm. That was a turning point. We were all in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. I remember that, you know. Mm. My mom says she recalls a conversation from time to time with Bob uh, about bringing these kids in and that, you know, you can tell them that someone's going to die, but they're not going to believe it, but someone's going to be dead. And, you know, sure enough, yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. I mean, and I, I know I read a quote that you said, uh, you know, you feel very responsible uh, for Janie and them, and, and you never get over that. I guess I will live with it until the day I die. Yeah, well, I, I should have been in that car, you know. I mean, so what happened was that I was, I was, I couldn't stop quiet, bronco, bronco problem. And uh, I had, uh, I thought, it was, I felt it was just a cold, you know, but it was, it was uh, Mickey Swerner and, uh, and Chaney, because I, uh, that was my first time meeting Andrew Goodman. Uh, that was his first time in the state. And so they came by the office in uh, Jackson. I was there because I didn't go to Oxford, you see, for the uh, training because we still had, we were still giving out blankets and, and uh, sleeping bags and trying to get those houses straightened out. So you're talking about Oxford, Ohio. Yeah, Oxford, Ohio. So I decided to stay. I stayed in Mississippi to take care of the, uh, the 
the loose ends for when the kids all start coming in. And so I was there when the church was burned and stuff like that. And so I go, I go over there, you know, and I come back. Uh, and so the, um, then, then the next day, uh, a chain of company came in and said, as, as LeVon would tell you, but that's what we would do. If, uh, if something like that happened to places, you got to go in. And the people got to see the faces. And the reason why uh, Chain them came back, because they, they need to see the face of the people who got it started. You know, they, got, that was, they knew that was, they had to go back in. That's their responsibility. You know, and so we were all supposed to go in. In fact, as Andrew Goodman wasn't supposed to come, it was supposed to be Fluky, Mario Suarez, come back. And so Mario uh, stayed and Andrew Goodman took his place. And they came through. So when they came through, they stopped in Jackson. Uh, and so I was going through this problem. And so they, the chain in Swerna just wouldn't let me go. They said, well, why don't you just stay? Because you got, you got a tough time coming. All these kids coming down, you know. You need to get some rest, stop that cough and stuff. Get some cough medicine. And I think it was chain. And so I said, get you, go get you some moonshine or something. You know. <laughs> you know? So we laughed about it. But I didn't do either one of those things. I left and, and drove to Shreveport. Because my mom was saying this, come on and get some of this uh, medicine. So they put, I knew she was going to give me that honey and stuff. You know what I'm talking about, LeVon, mixed yeah, up all this stuff, you know, <laughs> and drank that stuff. She, my grandmother, so when I got there, I drove there that night. And they were there waiting for me, that is, so I'd be ready to come the next. So I, the next day, I didn't go back the next day. And that's the part that got me was because I wasn't there, you know. And so we had some people there, but they were, you know, uh, uh, they were volunteers, more or less, and they weren't seasoned people because Fluky and George Raymond and Hollis and all, they were all in, in Oxford. And so uh, there, and so I told, I had given the instructions, there's chain, and they're supposed to be back at four o'clock, you know, that evening, and y'all be watch out, blah. Well, they didn't do it. You know, somebody says, well, give them a little bit more time. And so they called me at about six o'clock that evening, and so when they told me that Cheney, they had not checked in, I told my mom, I said, I, I, we just lost some people. Mm. Because uh, Mickey Swerner, I knew and him and Cheney, they knew Philadelphia. And so if they say they're going to check in at four o'clock, they're going to check in at four o'clock. You know, it's like yeah. clockwork, you know. So I felt that maybe something else would have happened. Number one is I should have gone, but uh, I should have been at a go, you know. And and that really hit me was when I went back to Philadelphia right after that is I went there to this old lady, you know, and she, she just like, you know, uh, she just lost her. She, she, you know, she, she, I thought she were dead, you know, I thought you were missing with other people. You were missing with the other people. You missing with them. Wasn't it? And I said, no, I'm here, you know? Yeah. Cause we had just been there before they left that we went there to have that meeting. Uh, for they the use the church the whole thing was they 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 do the church use the church as a free separate freedom school at the church there mm -hmm. and so they came in the, the, that night is and so the, the whole setup was to to get uh, uh, get us back in especially getting chain and uh, they really wanted to make it swerve you know yeah. which they call goatee you know so the clan had a thing a Bowers had a thing for them you know and Rain and them had a thing about him. Yeah. They want him badly. You know? mm. I mean, they had a bounty out on him, you know. So, yeah, you were um, you were very strategic when it came to core um, in Mississippi. And, you know, you you, were, you proposed uh, Canton as an ideal location to stage voter registration. Um, 
it's, it's proximity to, to Tougaloo College to pull in the students yeah. as well. Um, but Canton was, uh, Canton was a tough town. Yeah, but he had a tough, it had, it had some tough black folk there. You, know? uh, you mentioned the Chen. Yeah, the CO Chen was, I mean, he was, I mean, he owned the town, he and Billy Noble. See, he and Billy Noble, who was a sheriff, grew up together. So they had this strange relationship. So they were good friends. And they grew up together. So uh, uh, Billy, the perfect setup for Mississippi is LeVon to tell you, they had, uh, Billy Noble was a sheriff and C.O. Chen was a, was a bootlegger king. You know, he owned a joint and stuff there. Now, the sheriff, of course, was white. Of course, yeah. yeah of course. So, yeah, well, yeah, just, yeah, look, we're talking <laughs> people of 2020 right now. I mean, yeah, right. He's right. Yeah, he's Billy Noble. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, the, uh, so that's not for so me. <laughs> that's for everyone else, guys. And so, I think what people CO do Chen, need to know is that the, most, the state was run by the sheriffs. Exactly right. Most people didn't know that, but that's. Yeah. But you could talk about the governor all day, but the the what the bootlegging and everything else that went on was the sheriffs. The county right. is what did stuff, and it was the sheriff in the counties, which became really critical, particularly like with Emmett Till, and and yes, and the, yeah. everything that took place there. Right. Yeah. He, no, he's a Levon is absolutely correct. They were they, that was that was your power structure. Mm-hmm. So being together there is, I mean, CO, but CO, whatever it's called, CO owned about 200 some acres of land. It was a lot for a black person there. And, um, and his wife. And so when they started the movement there is, CO just changed. He was like, the, so one day, uh, George Raymond, then when they were there, we got it started. And say, so there's this guy who sits in front of the... <laughs> the building for all the meetings we have is, and he has his guns, you know, and he, his name is C.O. Chen. And so he said, he, he said, he's not moving and I'm not going to make him move. I said, well, so they wanted me to go over and talk to him. So I went over and I sat, and it, true enough is that the meeting they had, uh, that was uh, uh, C.O. Chen sitting in the back of his truck. And when I say he had a gun, he carried, uh, he had his rifle, but he wore, he wore a gun like doing a cowboy movie strapped to his leg, you know, <laughs> you know, so, so I went up to him. I told him, I said, you know, we nonviolent, blah, 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 talking about stuff, you know, he doesn't do anything but look at me. And he says, and then he finished. He, he, in fact, he told me, he said, you finish? <laughs> I said, yeah, I said, he said, let me tell you, he said, this is my town. All right. And these are my people. If you're going to come in and work around uh, this civil rights stuff is, that's putting my people in danger. Ain't nobody gonna come here and mess with my people. So as long as you do that, if you want to work here, you gotta be, I'm gonna be here because I'm gonna be here to protect my people. That was C.O. Chen, all right? So C.O. Chen and, and Billy Noble just became, I mean, really enemies to, you know, and that they, but C.O. walked walk around town with his gun on his side. Nobody messed with C.O. Chen. In fact, that's where he ended up going to uh, prison for a short period of time is he, uh, uh, there was a shootout. They came by his house and shot up his houses, and C.O. Chin jumped in his truck and chased the white folks down, chased them to a nightclub where they were hanging out at, a bunch of them, chased the other two into the nightclub and shot two of them and killed, and killed one, all right? And walked back into his truck, got a name about C.O. Chin. I mean, he got arrested for it, but that was C.O. Chin. But when C.O. Chin died, to respect, they had, they had a possession, a possession of cars, I mean, on him, 
the sheriffs, then the uh, 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 sheriffs in the front, and the police department behind them. All right, mm. and they gave us gun salute. All right, <laughs> it was amazing. I mean, Seal Chin was just a uh, he was an amazing person. He had that kind of respect, is but he was nobody mess with Seal Chin. Right? Yeah. yeah, he was, uh, uh, and he and he he, he bootlegged. You know, I mean, that's you know. But he was, he was a leader, he became a civic leader. Uh, his son became a judge and his uh, daughter-in-law became a judge, you know, and all real estate, something like this. But I mean, Seo Chen, when he died, he was, you know, he really, um, he spent about, uh, what, three or four years in prison for that, for manslaughter. Uh, but he shouldn't have gone to jail for that is, but he did because he, he chased the people down. But, but Seo Chen was a leader. Hmm. And he did it, nobody took his guns away from him. I mean, he protected his neighborhood and his, his place. And there are a lot of C.O. Chen stories I could talk all night about because <laughs> we were very close as and George Raymond and people like that. So we had to, we had a great battle with Core because Core was saying is that we, that we should not be working with the deacons. We shouldn't be working with people like C.O. Chen and Turnbull and them, you know, and say, hey, you know, I mean, you can't tell those people to put down their guns and stuff like that. We're going to do it. You kick us out of court if you want to, but we there. You know, these people, you know, really, uh, and the same thing was with, that we knew, that, I mean, you got this movie, Mississippi Burning, out about, uh, right. and they portrayed that the FBI, these heroes and stuff like this, that black people were scared. Mm-hmm. You know, those black people were there, were not afraid of this. I mean, you had to, you, going to the neighborhood in both of those areas, to get to the place at, at night, uh, uh, they, I mean, you had to give signals and stuff like that. You couldn't get in there, you know? Mm. And what Turnbull and them lived is you just couldn't get in there. You know, I mean, that was, uh, I mean, you, you had to have a, a signal with the lights on the car and stuff, you know, that's, uh, that you had to have. Uh, but they, I mean, they, everybody was, uh, uh, was armed and, 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 you know, and, and was ready. Cause I, so therefore, they didn't come in that day without the one night, that they were relaxed is, and that one I don't understand is, I mean, they, they say that they, they, they felt that some of the people uh, were, but one story is, is that they, which is true, is that, that the police came and the um, uh, sheriff's department came and arrested a couple of people who were, who were uh, lookouts when they brought, during, did the church. And I can believe that because they did that a couple of times in Shreveport where the deacons were actually, in one church I was in, uh, they had the uh, police came and arrested all the deacons out front. And as soon as they arrested all the deacons and took them away, the Klan came by and firebombed the church, you know, with a church full yeah. of people, you know. So that was a tactic they used, but they arrested them all for uh, carrying guns and stuff like that. So they were, they were white, but the police would come in, do a swoop, take them out, and then the Klan moves right in after that. You know? mm. um, so pulling from Tougaloo College, these students. One of the one of the students was uh, was Ann Moody, who spent a lot of time in Canton. Ann Moody was yeah, she was a good person. I mean, Ann Moody came out and she was uh, uh, she was something else. I mean, uh, she worked with the uh, with people in Canton very strongly, but she also worked there a couple of kids uh, in uh, Jackson that she worked with. One was the uh, child. What is the name? Call him Jughead. Uh, and then there was another by the name of Marvin Wilson. There were two young kids uh, that were very active in the civil rights movement pieces. And they were, so she used to go on a, a, a tour raising money with them for the for Corps and for COFO, you know. But she stayed, spent a lot of time in Canton. Uh, she worked with George Raymond and Fluke. Yeah. And she was very close to, uh, to the Chins. Yeah. 
you know, yeah, very close to the chin. Uh, she's at, with your mom when they were at the lunch counter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have a story about my mom I haven't heard yet? I, re- I, I remember Joan very well is, but she was, Joan was told that those days were pretty quiet, but she was more in the sit-ins. And so uh, what happened is, is that the, around with Medgar and them and the, with uh, John Salt in that crowd. Mm-hmm. And so I did not, uh, we, but I went to Mississippi, that's another story, is that I was not, uh, uh, we were trying to get out of the sit-in pieces and go into voter registration stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. And the only reason why, when I got to know your mom was, was during the time just before Mecca was killed, was Mecca had asked me to come in and help him with the students because he didn't know how to deal with this whole thing with nonviolence, uh, direct action stuff. And the kids from... Uh, uh, Tougaloo and the kids from uh, Lanier High School mm-hmm. right. wanted ready to get become very active and do some demonstrations stuff like that's when we began those demonstrations. Right. So I told him that I would do that. So we I came in and I brought George Raymond in and a couple of I think it was Hollis, a few of the snake people, Curtis here came in. We started doing some workshops uh, with the students on, on nonviolence and stuff like that. Is and so during that period of time, with Annie Moody and stuff, is your mom was around with the, uh, the Tougaloo kids, young people. Uh, but that's as much as I knew about that. But there was, just, there was a, it was like the, uh, the, uh, the wild bunch, in a sense. There was your mom, uh, uh, Annie Moody, Joyce, Dory Latner, the Latner sisters, you know, oh, yeah. and I uh, forgot who was all them. And so coming out of Tougaloo. And so I was seeing them, and so at one time is that I saw them too, they used to hang out at the, at the Freedom House on Rose Street, you know, mm-hmm. I think at that time, uh, I stayed, I, sp- I spent some time at the uh, Rose Street place, and that was when, when Dorian and uh, Giat and uh, Joyce also stayed, we all stayed at the, uh, so your mom came around there, it was part of that Tougaloo bunch, but, right. but I didn't get to know them too well, as you know, in terms of, to be honest with you, but I was, I knew you know, we would uh, we were coming in contact with each other, you know, right, kind of stuff. Right. Uh, but uh, I didn't get a chance to really get to know her then. I got to know your mom much more afterwards, mm-hmm. you know, but during that period of time, it's because I spent a lot of my time up in the Delta and in Hattiesburg. Yeah. Uh, there. Well, and I want to mention uh, in, in, in the Delta um, and where Mrs. Hamer was from in Ruleville, um, you established the first African-American cooperative in the South. Um, and so what was, what was the goal behind that? Was it the, the Ruva Mississippi Quilting Cooperative? Yeah, that, uh, what happened was, is that it was, I think it was in the late 62 or something like that, in 63. I was up, I was up there to visit um, Mr. Hamer in Ruville and I make the Mr. Johnson's in house, I think it was. And I went to this house and there were these group of old ladies, you know, and they were quilting. You know, they were sitting there telling these stories. And so I looked at the quilts, I mean, fabulous quilts. And I started talking about, you know, y'all can make some money with these quilts. Is oh, we just do this, to, you know, find a way. And they'd be given to the people uh, in the wintertime. You know, they'd be, when they just kept sewing, you know. So I asked them if I could have a couple of them. And so borrowed a couple of them. So I took them up to New York. And Marvin Rich, uh, there, a friend of mine there who worked with CORE, talking about it. So he took them, we took them down to the village, some of uh, these places, and they went crazy over them, all right, you know. So I went back to talk to them, to them they could make some money. So we formed a little organization, like, so they started, this. so we actually sold them, you know, but, <laughs> and then I learned, yeah, they, I learned this thing is, you know, but 
And then uh, they were making them so slow. The demand was just there, you know what I mean? We could have saw me. So I talked to them about they couldn't speed them up because they, 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 they were telling stories. So I got Marvin. Marvin got some of these sewing machines. One of those sewing machines up there in the uh, uh, Mr. Hamer's the museum now is one of paddle thing, you know, this was old singer, you know. Right, right. Yeah. And so they sent a course sent down a, a ship. I think it was a dozen of them or more, you know, of, of these machines. So we took them over that board. They were like, oh, my God, thank you. Oh, thank you, Dave. I mean, blah, 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 you know. So I would go pick up quills, so they, I'll let them know when I'm coming. So when I'm there, they got their machine just going on, you know, I'm saying, okay. So one day I was up there for something else, and decided to just stop by. <laughs> so I go in there, those damn machines were pushed up against the wall. <laughs> those ladies were there, sitting around, doing their thing. Because the quilting was all about storytelling, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's all dealt with the quilting and the storytelling. And so they didn't want, they didn't like using the machine. How did you and LeVon meet? How did we meet LeVon? LeVon was... <laughs> Actually, we met, in, we we met originally in Jackson. Oh. Yeah. Um, I've forgotten. Uh, I well, remember you were a kid, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was. Dave, did you ever, I know you were. Huh? Did you ever meet any of his gang members? No, I don't. Well, probably you didn't. Don't, no. <laughs> Bernard started that that madness about. <laughs> he still insists that I had a game. Um, that was something about you, but I don't know, Lavar. Wait a minute. Let me think a minute now. I don't you know came to Jackson, uh-huh. and as a matter of fact, when you came, I think I was living at Freedom House, which is what we called it, and the Although office was on Lynch Street. Yeah, right. That was, uh, Paul Brooks and them were living at the house. Right, and, and you came in one day, and, I'm, and that's, that's where we met. Okay. Because at the time, when we first started out, I don't, I, do you remember what year you came to Jackson? Yeah, oh. 19, it was uh, April of 1962. 62. So yeah. right after that, then I must have gone to the, to the, uh, to the Delta. Uh-huh. Well, I just gotten out of the, off of the penal farm one <laughs> <laughs> One of the two. It was, it was in past. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, but I remember, I think we met, we, I know we met in Jackson. And then uh, Gian and I went to the Delta uh, uh-huh. to, make, to work with Sam Block. Right. Uh, and I think you were still in, in Jackson. Now, was that, uh, when you, was that when you were, guys had to jump out the window and stuff? or That was, that was when we were almost, well, that's why it was so familiar with, the cops coming in and doing their sweep, and then the Klan coming, because they almost killed us. Uh, in the in the, uh, the I forget where we got who rented us the office, but we had an office in Greenwood, me, Sam, and Giot, and we did voter registration. Um, and we had uh, we were not doing direct action anymore, and yeah. uh, the Klan came to that office, and. Almost, almost caught us in there because there was no way out except the roof. I remember that. Yeah. I, I remember when that happened is because Bob and them came in right after that. They were, we, 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 we were looking for y'all. Yeah. And so well, Bob it. and them went in and he and... Uh, I don't know if Amzi came down or not. No, it wasn't Amzi. It was... Uh, what's his name? He, from, he lived in California until he just died not too long ago. He, came, he got an African name. Oh. Uh, Peacock. 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 Peacock, oh, that's yeah. right. It was Peacock and Bob and then 
I forgot well, all of them. Right. That's when, you know, because uh, you had broken down the door and everything. So Bob, <laughs> the, the story goes is that Bob said, okay, well, okay. Then Bob went to sleep on the couch. <laughs> Bob, Bob, Bob had a different attitude. Than right, right, right. <laughs> right. So they, they sometimes, were, I, sometimes they were, I thought Bob was trying to get killed. But <laughs> yeah, that's why, that's why. Uh, Ella Baker did what she did about sitting around because she said that's what's going to happen. She said, you need to go learn about these white folks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah, because Bob, uh, yeah, you know, his thing was, I'm here for freedom, I believe in it, and I'm going to just do everything. And no. we kept telling him, no, you're not. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for part two of our three-part conversation with Dave Dennis. To listen to the entire episode uncut, please follow us on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Loki Mulholland. Please join us for part three of our conversation with Dave Dennis, and don't be afraid to get uncomfortable.